let's turn our attention to illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages. Among the greatest works of European art and literature, they continue to dazzle and fetch enormous sums at auction. But what about the men and women who collected and preserved these uh, medieval wonders? My next guest is Christopher de Hamel, and he's one of them. After working at Sotheby's for 25 years, Christopher became a librarian at the Parker Library in Cambridge, and it said that, well, between Sotheby's and Cambridge, Christopher's seen more illuminated manuscripts than anyone else alive. You may recall Christopher dropped into the program about five years ago to discuss his book, Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts. It went on to become a surprise bestseller, won oodles of awards, including the Wolfson History Prize. Now he's back with another weighty tome, The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club. In it, he focuses on, well, not so much on remarkable manuscripts, but remarkable manuscript lovers. Christopher, welcome back. Before we meet your club of 12 manuscript lovers, uh, can you remind us how your own passion for medieval manuscripts began? I recall from our last conversation that you were born in London but uh, moved to New Zealand. Hello, it's a huge pleasure to find myself back here again. Um, yeah, my own interest in medieval manuscripts began as a child in Dunedin at the bottom end of New Zealand. You may think Australia is a long way from medieval Europe, but believe me, the south of the South Island of New Zealand is infinitely further away. And the local public library there has a small collection of medieval manuscripts, still does. And I stumbled on these when I was about 12 or 13, and I thought they were just amazing. Uh, New Zealand, like Australia, has very important prehistory and natural history and a modern political position in the world. But what it lacks is the equivalent of the Middle Ages. And if you get keen on medieval things living in Europe, you can go and see castles and hill forts and cathedrals and so on. And they're all around you. But in New Zealand, there's nothing except what moves and what moves are the manuscripts. And I thought they were just amazing and they changed my life. So you first uh, completed a degree in history. You returned to England for postgrad at Oxford. What was your thesis on? Good, you're extremely well informed. Um, I wrote a thesis, I went to Oxford and wrote a thesis on 12th century book production. Um, I hadn't really, the oldest manuscript in New Zealand, and there's only one there of the 12th century, was the oldest one I'd ever seen. And I came back to, to England and found myself totally immersed in 12th century books. And I used the university holidays to travel around Europe with a rucksack and a camera looking at looking at manuscripts, many of them still in ancient, ancient libraries, monasteries, old, old local municipal libraries, completely different from what one might see in New Zealand or Australia. Um, but another total absorption in in manuscripts and kind of schoolboy hobby became a lifetime obsession. Decades ago, I was a regular customer of Sotheby's, buying quite a lot of antiquities from them. And of course, very glad to hear it. (laughs) Anyone who worked at Sotheby's in any of the departments got to handle masses of material. That was the case with you. It was a tremendously exhilarating period. I joined them in 1975, and there were still then, it's not 
the case now, but there were still very large numbers of small departments dealing in every kind of work of art. So there was a specialist in, um, you know, in uh, Japanese uh, Japanese netsuke and, and suits of armor and paperweights and you know old watches and stamps and coins and antiquities and uh, and so on and and there were many of us there and we all had our own little little corners and I was medieval manuscripts and people would come in at the counter and it doesn't happen so much now with a cardboard box and they would open it out and and bring out things and they would say I expect this is nothing expecting hoping it's valuable and. We all came down and looked at these things, and extraordinary objects turned up. It was as an exposure to uh, to art. I think I can think of no other occupation that could bring so much. And of course, you had to say something about them. You had to <laughs> identify them. I mean, you know, that's what made them valuable. It was, well, it was like being it was like being, it was like being in, in an endless production of antique roadshow, wasn't it? Uh, uh, that is exactly what it is like. And I still find that a compulsive program, but that's exactly what we did all day. It, it, it really is like that. My guest is uh, Christopher de Hamel, and we're discussing his new book, The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club. Now, please tell me, is the Manuscripts Club real or fictional? It is completely fictional. It doesn't exist. We originally called the book... The Manuscripts Men, that was originally my idea, uh, rather like The Monuments Men. I thought it had a sort of ring about it, and that was the name of it, uh, all the way through the writing of it, and indeed uh, through quite a long way into the editorial and proof stage. And then at the last minute, the publishers said, you know, we don't like this word men. is going to be complicated, particularly <laughs> in America. Uh, because every review is going to begin, well, what about women then? And of course, there are women in it. And so we had to think of another title. And this was actually my idea, the posthumous papers. It's 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 the original title of Dickens's Pickwick Papers, which was originally called the posthumous papers of the Manuscripts Club. And the idea behind the whole book is that if you have a passion for any subject. It can be football, it can be, in your case, it can be antiquities, but it can be it can be Jane Austen or music or anything. And you can go to a conference or, or, a, or a, a meeting or whatever, and what you have in common with everybody else is this shared passion. And in doing so, all the differences of background and education and money fall away and you meet as complete equals. They, they share a passion and they understand each other. And the idea of this supposed club is all the people throughout history who, like me and many, many other people, are fascinated by manuscripts. Imagine that we're all part of a group, that we could meet together, that we could talk together. Christopher, yeah. you must confess yes. there is, in fact, a real medieval manuscript society in uh, the US. There are many societies, in fact, associated uh, connected with medieval manuscripts, of course. And I've been to many conferences on manuscripts, including in Australia. Um, so, so it is a subject which, of course, does have enormous appeal. But the idea of this confraternity, maybe is a better word, is not that it spreads right across the world as it would now, but to turn it round and to take it right through history. So suddenly, our group is not scattered worldwide, but is scattered through a thousand years going backwards. 
The members of your imaginary club, ranging from the 11th century to the 20th, are a very diverse group, and they include uh, Benedictine monks, a French aristocrat, a 19th century Greek forger, and uh, the woman who created the most spectacular library in America. Yes, we tried to choose people... I've chosen 12. It could have been dozens. I mean, it could have been hundreds. It could have, you could have gone anywhere. Um, I chose. I tried to choose ones with a, a reasonably wide range of reasons for wanting to be interested in manuscripts. They're not just collectors. They easily could be. But they're also editors and, and, and dealers and forgers and patrons and people who make manuscripts and people who curate them and, and people who, you know, who advise on them or, or write about them or... Anyone really whose life is, is, is really dominated by a passion for manuscripts. Going back to my encounters with Sotheby's and Christie's, I remember we were always concerned, of course, with fakes and forgeries. Is there a large body of fake and forgeries in illuminated manuscripts? Um, I think the short answer to your question is no. And the longer answer is, I hope not, because we haven't noticed. But actually, it is quite difficult to forge a medieval manuscript convincingly, unlike, say, a single item like an antiquity or, uh, say, a Roman coin or something where where, where there's just, just one object. Um, a manuscript has to have not only the language right, the handwriting right, the illumination right, the art right, uh, the binding. It has to have come from somewhere. These are not archaeological objects. They belong to people. If something turns up, people say, well, where's it been? Where's it come from? Tracing a manuscript back through history is often part of the, uh, the huge fascination, that, that that joining hands across the ages, which I love. Um, I think it's very difficult to forge a manuscript uh, convincingly. However, in your question, I have chosen one man from the 19th century who was a Greek forger of manuscripts and a very, very convincing one. And I admit him joyfully to the club. I think even forgers have an enthusiasm and a delight and a beguilement Look, um, I, I agree with that. I have, in fact, from time to time, accidentally bought, bought a forgery. But yeah. sometimes it has been a work of wonderment in and of itself. Oh, I actually want to know if an item is genuine. It makes a big difference to me whether it's real or isn't real. People say, oh, I don't really mind as long as it's beautiful. Actually, I do mind. I really want. I want to know everything about a manuscript, where it was made and when and why and how and so on, and how, how it survived. And, and I do care whether it's genuine. But um, it's sometimes in looking at um, I mean, in a much, much bigger area, in looking at forgery, looking at what people forge, will tell you a great deal about an age or a civilization. In the Middle Ages, people forged land titles. They were very, very much concerned uh, to prove possession of land. In the 17th century, people were forging ancestors. Uh, in the 19th century, people were beginning to forge paintings. Art, art collecting became became a big big thing. I don't quite know what we forge now. Probably 
financial records. Um, you know, and will future historians look at our age and say what a lot that tells us about people of the 21st century? I don't think that that, that art forgery is as big a thing now as it was 100 years ago. To uh, borrow from Dylan Thomas, let's begin at the beginning. The first yes. character we meet in your book is an 11th century monk. Why do you begin your imaginary club with him? With a monk. The monk is St. Anselm. Anselm was a Benedictine monk, born originally in Italy, became a monk in Normandy, and then at the time of the Norman conquest of England in 1066, said to be the only date anyone in England knows, um, the Normans came here and swept over many of their personnel, and Anselm was brought over some decades afterwards uh, to become taken from his monastery to become Archbishop of Canterbury. So he lived both in uh, Normandy and England. Um, Many people associate medieval manuscripts with monks. We tend to think easily that all these things were made by monks and the old image of a monk sitting in his cloister copying a book out slowly is true, but really only from the early period, only till about 1200 were most books made by monks. But to begin the book, I felt I had to begin with a monk. It represents part of a, a thousand years of production, the way the books were made. And the interesting thing about Anselm is that he was not only an author, but he also became a saint quite early, quite soon after his death. <laughs> Therefore, there is a great deal of information about him. And there are, there's a, a, he himself wrote, wrote reflections on his own life uh, and talked about it. And then there's a, there's a, a biography of him uh, written by one of his disciples, one of his close uh, monks friends in Canterbury. And there are a lot of his letters. So there's a great deal we can say about Anselm. And for many monks, there's very little information. And I had to choose somebody where there's enough to tell a story. Well, you make the point that he could be thought of as a politician or a theologian. Uh, uh, he is a theologian, a very, very important theologian and philosopher. Um, he's one of the great medieval philosophers. His great book called Cur Deus Homo, why, why the Incarnation Happened, is one of the great, great works of logical reasoning. Uh, he was not a very good politician. Um, he became, as I said, Archbishop of Canterbury, fell out badly with the king, then Henry I, and it all, um, it became difficult and complicated. And he was not as good a politician as he was a theologian and a monk and a book enthusiast. The, uh, the next guest you invite us to meet is the Duke yes. of Berry. Tell me yes. about the Duke. The Duke de Berry, who, who died in 1416, was the uh, younger son of the King of France. And then as generations passed, he became the brother of the King and then the uncle of the King. So he is closely connected with the French royal family at a time when they were people of enormous, wealth and influence. He became a manuscript collector and patron of manuscripts. He is the person who commissioned the Très Riche Heure of the Duke de Berry, which is probably the single most famous late medieval illuminated manuscript. Uh, it's in the library at Chantilly, north of Paris. But it's that famous book of hours with those calendar miniatures at the front with great arch tops showing all the different occupations of the month of the peasants 
uh, going through the different activities of the year, so ploughing and sowing and harvesting and, and so on, and with castles in the background. And that is perhaps his most famous and one of the most valuable books in the world. But he was also a collector. And the great thing about him, I said, in choosing Anselm, I had to choose someone where there's information. In the case of the Duke de Berry, we have inventories, exact inventories of his collections, assembled and updated over many years. And although more than 100 of his manuscripts survive, we have descriptions of many, many others. And they're often very, very detailed, um, recounting what the books looked like, who painted them, where they've been, where he got them, often what he paid for them, what happened to them afterwards. And one can conjure a whole image of this difficult man. And I think he was... He was probably autocratic, difficult, rude, hard of access, but get him in his library after dinner, and I know we would both have enjoyed ourselves. We'd have pulled books off the shelves, and he'd have looked at this, and we'd have compared that, and all those differences would have fallen away. And he was a marvellous collector and the first real modern connoisseur. Of course, it was a time when there was a, a great competition for religious relics, when everyone was after a piece of the one true cross. There was probably enough of them for railway sleepers to cross the Nullarbor. And your bloke claimed to own the Virgin Mary's engagement ring. Yes, he was a, uh, to, to be fair, his curator rather doubted the authenticity of that one. Uh, he was a collector, and and even in alluding to yourself, uh, collectors generally begin very young, and they've, as Duke Berry certainly did, and they collect many, many things. He was not only a collector of manuscripts, he clearly longed to own things, and he collected relics. Relics were something he was fascinated by, and um, it's easy for us now, after 500, 600 years of Protestant outrage and embarrassment of Catholics to look back on relics as, as as rather strange and unsatisfactory and even slightly creepy objects. But imagine it's not so different from collecting autographs now, and many people do that. That sort of sense of authenticity and of wanting examples, wanting to be able to touch hands with some important figure of history. That's really what he's doing. He wants to touch hands with, with immortality. It's, it, it's, it's exhilarating to watch. I suddenly remember Spike Milligan and I got the great idea of marketing Shroud of Turin tea towels. Now, before we say goodbye to the Duke of Berry, he did, oh. in fact, commission one of the most important illuminated books. Uh, he did indeed. He commissioned quite a number of manuscripts, including as I said a moment ago, the Très Richer, painted by the Limburg brothers, and we know their name only because they are they are named in his inventory. Um, and they did uh, they did a number of manuscripts for him. Um, the Très Richer is the most important. There's another one uh, generally known as the Belzer by the same artists uh, in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And there is also a, and I think I'm allowed to tell you this, um, a book of ours recently acquired by Kerry Stokes in Western Australia from a private collection, almost certainly illuminated for the Duke de Berry. There is now a Duke de Berry manuscript in Australia. You actually held the holy grail of illuminated manuscript in your hands, not, uh, not once, but twice. Tell me about that. I have seen the Treuscher. I'm not quite sure which is the greatest manuscript in the world. That's one of those questions. It's probably either the Treuscher or it's the Book of Kells. 
Um, and I have actually had both of them out, so that's fine. The Très Richeur was, was, was owned in the 19th century by the Duke d'Aumale. It, it has a rather complicated history. It came down, it belonged uh, in the 16th century to Margaret of Austria. And then it, it kind of disappears and it finds its way into the possession of a family in Genoa. And it turned up in a sale uh, in Genoa, in Italy, in the, um, the mid-1850s. And it was bought then by the Duke d'Aumale, brought to England. Um, so it comes back into my story in the 19th century. And then he returned to France and bequeathed it to, to the, the, the Institut de France uh, at their museum, at the Musée Condé. And it is extremely precious and extremely famous and, and a kind of national emblem to the French. And they normally exhibit only a facsimile. And it takes some effort to get the original out, but I have done so twice now. J.P. Morgan, Kerry Stokes, fast forward to, well, to a uh, an American millionaire buying up Europe's illuminated manuscripts and shipping them across the Atlantic wholesale. Tell me about uh, a woman called Belle de Costa Green. Belle de Costa Green is an extraordinary figure and I've become totally fascinated by her. She she joined the household of Pierpont Morgan in 1906. She'd be working in Princeton University Library. She was a quite dark complexion. And she explained that she was of Portuguese aristocratic descent and that the de Costa of her middle name was the name of her Portuguese grandmother. And this was always believed. And about 50 years after her death, it was realized, not by me, that this was completely untrue. She was not Portuguese. She'd invented, that was not her real name. Uh, that was not her real age. She's not the only woman in history to embellish that a little bit. And it was she was she was of uh, African-American descent. The Portuguese bit and the da Costa bit are completely fake. Now, now we would rejoice in that. But in America, in the very early 20th century, during the whole time of segregation, this was a secret that she never, ever revealed. And what others did, it was what was called passing, which was pretending, pretending to be European, when in fact, she was a descendant of enslaved people on both sides of her family. Um, and her father was the first black graduate of Harvard. So they were, they were a clever family. And she said her father was dead, her mother was a widow, and so he absolutely wasn't dead. Um, he had actually run off with another woman in Vladivostok in, 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 in Eastern Russia, an extraordinary story, but, but she, never, she probably never saw him again. And she then, from this really rather unlikely background, becomes the great priestess of Illuminated Manuscripts in America. She convinced Pierpont Morgan, who was, a, who was a wild, he was just a collector. He was a real collector. He also collected uh, gemstones and relics and so on, just like the Duke de Berry. And she focused him on books, books, and especially manuscripts, and especially Illuminated Manuscripts. She was the one who made the decision to put together the collection, formed this marvellous library. And when it became a public institution, Christopher, one final director. one final question before we say farewell, yeah. at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. If you could summon all of your fantasy manuscript lovers yes. from the past to dinner with us now, how do you think they'd react? I think they would be thrilled to meet each other. Of course, most of them never did. 
I think they'd have chattered away with delight. I think they'd be thrilled, not only that their life passion survives, but that the manuscripts survive too. And the books that they liked still exist. It's a wonderful link across thousand years of history. Good on you, Christopher. Thanks for that. Uh, I've been talking to Christopher de Hamel, expert on medieval manuscripts and life fellow of the Corpus Christi College at Cambridge. His new book, The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club, is published by Penguin. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.